Thank you, sweetheart. I'm ready now. Here we go. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And this is a message that we would think, well, uh, you're a little early on this message, uh, the, the Palm Sunday message, you know. Uh, but that's where we're at, okay? And we take it as it comes. We don't say, well, we're going to skip that for now. Uh, but that's where we're at in our study of the book of John. So we here are here at the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ into uh, uh, Jerusalem. And it's always uh, something that... Uh, uh, you know, concerns me, and uh, it's uh, sad to see when people make a profession of faith in Christ, and they begin to follow Him, and later they uh, fall away, and then they be, they get far away from God, and that's always a sad to see. Now, I believe in some cases these people have been involved in serving the Lord, maybe in a full-time ministry, but sometimes something goes wrong, and they're not only out of the ministry and away from the church. But they're not even professing to believe in Jesus. I've heard some say, well, uh, they, they're an atheist now. They don't even think there's a God. Uh, well, that's sad. That's really sad that they one time thought, you know, you felt like they made a profession of faith. And that's just what it was, a profession and uh, perhaps not a possession. Uh, there are many causes, I think, for spiritual failure. Uh, sometimes things in life or ministry did not go the way we hope they go. Perhaps they, uh, we get burned out. Maybe other believers, uh, who violated our trust. Uh, some, uh, I know have had nagging doubts. Uh, they've lived with doubts, uh, many, many years. They're not sure. I'm just not sure I'm saved. I don't know if I'm saved. Uh, or they have difficult questions about the Bible that, that bother them. And, uh, maybe there are questions that people, you know, there are always questions that people come up with, you know, uh, uh, in the Bible, uh, that are skeptical and, uh, that are causing people to doubt the, the word of God. And that's what Satan wants. He wants you to doubt his word. That's what it has been from the very start with uh, Adam and Eve. He said, yea, hath God said? Did God really say that? And so people will try to get you off track as well. Uh, and the skeptics will try to get you to fall away as well. But many, in many cases, people can fall away because of serious sin. Now, we should not be surprised by such uh, cases, since the Bible contains many, many examples of spiritual failure. Uh, in chapter 4, uh, it mentions Judas, one of the twelve who would betray Jesus. Acts chapter 5, you find Ananias and Sapphira, members of the early church who were struck dead for their dishonesty. Uh, there was Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8 who professed faith in Christ. He was baptized but he tried to buy spiritual power from the apostles so that he could impress the crowds and uh, he could perform miracles too. Later in Acts chapter 20, Paul warned the Ephesian elders that from the midst, their midst would some arise drawing away disciples from them. Paul would even warn Timothy that about several men that would turn from the faith. And we've been looking at that on Wednesday evenings in our Bible study, uh, in our letters to Timothy. But he expressed grave concern about a man by the name of Demas, a former fellow worker who had deserted uh, Paul because he loved this present world. 
Uh, later, uh, both Peter and John would warn about false teachers who probably once were sound, but now they're preying on the flock. And while there are different reasons for these and others that fall away from the Lord, I believe at the root case, uh, root of every case is that the person either never knew or, uh, or they lost sight of who Jesus is. They never knew him. They never had a personal relationship with him or they lost sight of who he was. Uh, now understanding Jesus' identity, I think we, as we've studied the book of John, you've no- noticed that that is very, very important. Who Jesus is. Uh, and it be, be, because your eternal destiny rests upon believing the truth about who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. And so that's why John, and I remind you of the theme verse again of the book of John is in chapter 20 and verse 31, where it says that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. Now, if you understand and you believe who Jesus is, uh, that can bring you to eternal life. It can bring you to salvation. Uh, If you have false notions about who Jesus is or false hopes about what he's going to do for you in life, at some point you're going to be disappointed and you're going to fall away and you're going to perhaps have made a profession of faith, but then you've not really been a possessor of uh, faith and had a true relationship with God. Now, Jesus and his so-called triumphal entry into Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passion Week uh, should perhaps be called, uh, could be called a tragic entry because really it's a triggering of events that leads to his death. Now we say that's tragic and yet that was a thing that he came to do. He was born to die. And uh, so we have kind of mixed emotions about that, don't we? Uh, Luke chapter 19 reports that when Jesus approached Jerusalem, he wept over it. Uh, the crowds lined the tree, uh, the street and the, they cheered for Jesus as the long-expected king of Israel. But they were hoping for a political king. Uh, someone who would lead a military victory against Rome and provide eventual peace and prosperity for their nation. Uh, they were not so interested in a Messiah and a spiritual kingdom. Someone who would provide forgiveness for their sins and who would be Lord and in every aspect of their personal life. So within a week, the shouts of Hosanna will turn to crucify him, crucify him. Uh, This fickle crowd was following Jesus for the wrong reasons. And that's what many times happens uh, in, in people's lives. A faulty foundation inevitably will collapse. Now, we find Jesus' triumphal entry reported to us in all four of the Gospels. To understand it properly, you have to recognize that this it's a complete reversal of all that Jesus had done in his ministry up to this point. Uh, up till now, Jesus really has kind of kept it quiet. Uh, he's veiled his identity as, as Messiah. And when a deem proclaimed him to be the Holy One of God, he told him to be quiet in Mark 1. And when he healed people, Jesus said, don't tell anyone in Mark chapter 1 and chapter 7. And then even when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, he gave strict orders that no one should know about it in Mark chapter 5. When disciples gained insight into his identity as Messiah, he told them, don't tell anyone, Mark chapter 8 and chapter 9. And the only exception 
in John so far has been when Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well that he was the Messiah. And now Jesus deliberately, uh, you could say, stages a public demonstration to proclaim himself as Messiah in Jerusalem at the most widely attended feast of them all. There's perhaps a million pilgrims in this city for the Passover, according to one estimate. Uh, The other Gospels make it clear that Jesus set up this event by sending his two disciples to go and get the donkey and the colt. And when some of the Pharisees in the crowd objected to the people's shouts of Hosanna, rather than quieting the shouts, Jesus affirmed them by saying in Luke chapter 19 and verse 40, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones should immediately cry out. So here's a dramatic shift in Jesus' ministry at this point. And we need to understand why. And the answer lies in the Jewish concept of Messiah in Jesus' day. Messiah is a word that is a Hebrew word that means to anoint. Christ is also a very uh, similar word. <coughs> it's in the, uh, from a Greek word means to anoint. And so Messiah or Christ is the one who God anoints to ascends to deliver his people from uh, sin and rule over them as king and Lord. And the kings of Israel were God's anointed rulers of his people, but the kings of Israel always fell short. Even David, the greatest king of, of Israel, made some very serious mistakes. But God promised to send one of David's descendants to reign on his throne. He would rule in absolute righteousness and justice. He would crush all opposition under his feet, according to Psalm chapter or Psalm 2. The political aspect of Messiah as king dominated the Jewish thinking in that day, in that first century, as the nation was under Roman rule. And this political aspect of the Messiah's reign is given to us in Psalm 118 and verse 26, which the people cite here in John chapter 12 and verse 13. Uh, We saw it there in verse 13. This is from Psalm 118 verse 26. Blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. But the Old Testament presents a second aspect of the Messiah, namely that he should be the suffering servant who would bear the sins of his people, deliver them uh, from God's judgment, and establish a kingdom of righteousness. And he would not only be the king, but also Israel's prophet and priest. And that's the theme of Psalm 110. And that proclaims the Messiah not only as a conquering warrior, but also a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the suffering servant is a theme of Isaiah uh, chapters 40 through 55, especially the great prophecy of Isaiah 53. And so it's in also implicit in the prophecy of Zechariah 9, verse 9, which is going to be cited here in verse 15, where he says, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. Now, this presents the Messiah not as a warrior, not mounted in a powerful uh, stallion horse of, some, uh, of greatness, but a humble mounted on the foal of a donkey. And the idea of Messiah as a humble sin bearer to his people was not the way they were thinking in that day. 
They were looking for someone who was powerful, a political, a political messiah. So in the triumphal entry, Jesus was declaring himself to be Israel's messiah, but not the kind of messiah they expected. He did not ride into Jerusalem on a powerful war horse to lead the charge against Rome, but on the foal of a donkey, which was not thought to be a very kingly animal in Jesus' day, nor is it probably today. Uh, But he was going to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And so by this public demonstration, Jesus deliberately was provoking the Jewish leaders. They wanted to kill him, but not at the Passover They didn't want to riot among the people. But for scripture to be fulfilled, Jesus needed to die as the Passover lamb for his people. And so Jesus, knowing that his time was come. you know, Remember, we've seen all the way through, my time is not here. My hour has not yet come. Now he is preparing or saying that his time had come. And so this triumphal entry is going to trigger the events that will lead to his death coinciding with the Jewish Passover, and the Jewish leaders did not take Jesus' life against his will, but rather he laid it down willingly for his sheep, as we saw there in chapter 10. Now, with all this foundation for understanding this very important event in Jesus' ministry, this pivotal uh, event, let's turn to what, how it applies to us. How does this make any difference to us this morning? Well, number one, we need to make sure that you follow Jesus because of who he is, not of what you think he might provide for you. So number one is following Jesus is not for temporal benefits. This is kind of the negative side first. It is not for temporal benefits. John presents various groups that will take part in this triumphal entry. The crowd who had come to Jerusalem for the feast took the branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him. Uh, We see this in verses 12 and 13. (coughs) John is the only gospel to mention the palm branches, by the way, uh, as we associate, you know, with this, uh, like I said, this is a message for Palm Sunday. Uh, That's why it's called Palm Sunday, because this was the the time when they they had the palm branches out. According to history, two centuries before Christ, Judas and Simon Maccabeus had driven the Syrian uh, forces out of Israel. Their victory was celebrated with music and the waving of palm branches, which was also prominent in the earlier rededication of the temple. And so the waving of palm branches kind of became a tradition, and they were a symbol of Jewish nationalism, of victory over their enemies. The crowd was hopeful that You know, Jesus would be that messianic liberator who would free them from Rome's domination. And so they cry in verse 13, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And again, that comes from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. And that's the... the climax of the Hallel uh, uh, Psalms, uh, which were Psalms 113 through 118. And they were sung at the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, the Feast of Dedication, and then also the Feast of Passover. Now the word Hosanna means, oh save, or save now. And that's uh, what you read in Psalm 118 verse 25. It may have been a prayer, or just a cry of praise to God. Now the next line, 
In verse 13 here, blessed is the king of Israel is really not from Psalm 118, but rather shows that the crowd understood Psalm 118 as referring to the messianic king. Now this group largely consisted of those who gave a claim to Jesus because they thought of the temporal benefits that he would provide for them. They thought he would usher in an age of peace and prosperity. Excuse me. Now, their hopes were fueled by those who had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, uh, who would tell others about this spectacular miracle. And if Jesus had done this for Lazarus, surely he could meet their their, uh, needs as well. Uh, John adds in verse 16 that even the disciples did not understand these things at first. And it was only after Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, glorified, that they connected the dots between the Old Testament prophecies and what the crowd had done to Jesus. So even the disciples are pretty much in line with the crowd that day. They view Jesus as a political savior, and as a result, their faith in him was severely shaken until they saw him after he was raised from the dead. Now the application is, that our faith, your faith, will be shaken and perhaps even destroyed if you follow Jesus because you think he's going to give you some thing, some financial prosperity, uh, some good health, or some other temporal benefits. If that's why you're following Jesus, your faith will be shaken. Now, but what if you contract a serious illness? What if you get that dreaded C word, cancer? What if you suffer a severe financial loss and you have to sell everything? What if your marriage isn't the storybook, ideal romance that you thought that God would give you? What if your children don't follow the Lord? What if your children turn against you? Hebrews 11 talks about God can and does give dramatic victories to his people. But right in the middle of verse 35 of Hebrews chapter 11, as verses 35 through 38 show people who trust God, who were mocked, who were scourged, who were imprisoned, who were even martyred. You know, you think life has dealt you some really bad things and uh, some serious things like an illness or a financial loss or, or uh, marital problems or something. Think about being mocked, scourged, imprisoned, and even killed for your faith. You see, the reward is not in this life, but the reward comes in the life to come. The health and the wealth teaching is heresy today, and it leads people to disappointment. It leads people to destruction of their faith when things don't turn out like they think they should, or like the teachers tell them that they should. You see, we shouldn't follow Jesus because we think he's going to give us the goodies of this life. So don't follow Jesus because of temporal benefits. Follow Jesus for who he is. If your faith rests on the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture, then you will not be shaken whether you go to prison or you're blessed with prosperity. 
You may suffer terrible health, you may die young, or you may enjoy good health, and your faith does not rest upon your circumstances, but on who Jesus is and what he has promised his children throughout eternity. And our text has several lines of proof of that Jesus is God's Messiah and King. Notice, first of all, fulfilled prophecies. John mentions these two Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled on this particular day, Palm Sunday as we would call it. We've already looked at the first in Psalm 118, in verse 25 and 26. It says, save now, and that's the word that they used, Hosanna, save now I beseech ye, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord, we have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. You see, the Jews understood this referred to the Messiah. Uh, Just before these verses, the psalm cites the lines that Jesus applied to himself. These are in Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23. and, and, And he said this, The stone which the builders refuse has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So you have that Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled. John also refers to the prophecies I mentioned earlier that Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, and behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. That's exactly what's taking place here. These prophecies, given hundreds of years before, are now being fulfilled. John, here in verse 15, cites an abbreviated form of that quote. He says, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. Now the word fear not, the phrase fear not, replaces rejoice greatly. Uh, Perhaps John wants to assure his Jewish readers living after the destruction of Jerusalem that not to fear, not to fear in spite of disaster, because Jesus, Jesus is still the king of Israel. I think John's point in referring to Zechariah's prophecy is to show that Jesus in his first coming was not the conquering king riding on a war horse, but a humble king offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Now later in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, John sees Jesus coming on a white horse to judge and to wage war. But in his first coming... Jesus was the suffering Messiah King, offering peace and salvation. And Psalm 118, Zechariah 9 are just two of many prophecies that confirm Jesus' identity as the Messiah and King. So the first proof we have here is fulfilled prophecies. The second is the works of power. John does not mention that the young colt on which Jesus rode was unbroken, And that would be a miracle. Uh, If you don't think so, try riding an unbroken colt sometime. I've never tried it myself, but I I think that would be difficult. Uh, Besides, there's probably not a colt that's going to be able to hold a man of my stature. But anyway, uh, he doesn't mention it, but he does mention verse 17 that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. 
In all, John gives seven of Jesus' miracles or signs that he performed before his resurrection, plus the miraculous catch of fish in John chapter 21. And John reports these signs again in John 20, verse 31, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So there are many works of power that give proof that Jesus is the Messiah. There's also the control of the circumstances. John does not elaborate in this story, as the other Gospels do, that Jesus deliberately arranged for the colt to ride upon. And throughout his Gospel, he has repeatedly shown that Jesus is in control of all his circumstances under the Father's sovereign timetable. Uh, Since John chapter 5, the opposition to Jesus has been increasing and mounting up with repeated attempts to kill him. But in every case, Jesus was protected because his hour was not yet come. His time was not yet come. And after Jesus claims to deity in John chapter 8, you know, the uh, Jews, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus left in their midst, out of their midst, unharmed. Again, in John chapter 10, the Jewish leaders accused Jesus of blasphemy, tried to kill him once again, tried to stone him because he claimed to be one of the fa- uh, with the Father. But John chapter 9 and verse 39 says he escaped out of their hand. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Jewish leaders intensified their attempts to kill him, but Jesus withdrew because his time had not yet come. And yet, But now, six days before the Passover, Jesus knows that his hour has come to offer himself as the Lamb of God. So he changed his ministry strategy and he openly presented himself as the Jewish Messiah, even though he knew that the crowds were having a, had a mistaken view of their Messiah. He forced the Jewish leaders to go in against their plan not to kill him during the feast. And they, they inadvertently killed the true Passover lamb, even as the other Passover lambs were being killed. Acts chapter 4 sums this up. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28 says, For of a truth against the holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined beforehand to be done. You see, Jesus was always in control, even over his own death. He did not die as a helpless victim, but as a willing sacrifice for your sins and my sins. So the applied message of Jesus' triumphal entry is, make sure you follow him because who he is, not because of what you think he might provide for you in this life. Now, I'm so thankful he does provide forgiveness of sins. He does provide eternal life for anyone who would believe in him. But with that gift may come some hardship, may come some persecution. There's one final thought in our text here. Do not follow Jesus. To to not follow Jesus results in loss. To not follow Jesus results in loss. You can oppose Jesus and you can succeed in the short run. But in the long run, if you oppose Jesus, you're going to lose. I'll tell you that right now. You oppose God, you're going to lose. And he's going to win. 
Now you look at verse 19 and it mentions the frustration of the Pharisees as they saw the crowds exalting Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing, behold the world has gone after him. Now this is again another example of irony uh, here in John's Gospel. The Pharisees meant, everyone is going after Jesus. Our efforts to get rid of him have failed. But John wants us to see that although by the end of the week the tide will turn and the Jewish leaders were gloating in their victory, it was going to be a short-lived victory. You know why? Jesus didn't stay dead. He arose from the dead. And when John wrote, the gospel was going out through the whole world to Jews and Gentiles alike. And that actually anticipates the next paragraph where the Greeks want to see Jesus. And we'll look at that this afternoon, the Lord willing. Interestingly enough, Revelation chapter 7 Also, verses 9 and 10, uh, John reports another scene with palm branches. The only other time palm branches are mentioned in the New Testament. It says in Revelation 7, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hand, or palms in their hands, And cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Now that scene shows us the ultimate triumph of the Lord. And the Jewish leaders succeeded. They were successful in crucify him. But he will reign over all throughout eternity. He's going to win in the end. He does win in the end. John is making the point that if you oppose Jesus in the short short run, you may look like you've succeeded in your rebellion, but in the long run, Jesus will win and you will lose if you have not yielded to him before he comes again. So why do you follow Jesus this morning? Someone may say, I am following Jesus because I want to give him to him a, uh, I want him to give me a godly marriage partner. Now, that's a legitimate need that he can supply, but it shouldn't be the main reason that you follow Jesus. Or you may follow Jesus because you want him to heal your marriage. Again, he can do that, but that's not the main reason you follow Jesus. Someone else might say, I follow Jesus because I want to—I uh, have many deep emotional hurts from my past. I, I've had some terrible things happening. I want God to heal me from those. Again, he can do that. But it's not the main reason to follow him. The right reason to follow Jesus is because of who he is. God's anointed one, the rightful king over every heart and life. He died for your sins. He arose from the grave and he's coming back in power and glory to reign over all. So whether you struggle with tribulation, with distress, with persecution, with poverty, with health issues or death itself, you can overwhelmingly conquer if your faith in him as your Lord and Savior, follow Jesus because of who he is, not the temporal benefits 